right, well, while they're getting settled, if you want to turn to Exodus, Exodus chapter 19, I believe it'll be on page 60 if you want to use one of the Bibles in the seat backs. If you don't have a Bible, you're welcome to take that home with you. It'll be our gift to you. Exodus chapter 19. That's where we'll be headed in just a moment. Well, um, in our community groups this month, we're studying uh, how to find God in a busy life. And uh, last week when we met in our group, the, question, the opening question was, how would you describe your schedule right now? And then give an example of your busiest day this week. And as we asked that, it was sort of met with this collective chuckle from everybody there. Uh, and this groan of like, man, like life, like just this yeah, understanding of, man, it's so, so crazy right now. Um, as people reflect on all they have going on. So I'm curious, how about you? How many of you have gone, have gone to or will be going to a dance recital in the last couple of weeks? Or be going today? Or how about a band concert? All right, all right. How many of you have uh, gone into a retail store in a hurry and left frustrated this week? Yeah, I went to Target yesterday. I was like, I, I missed something? Is it Christmas Eve? Like, I don't know why there's so many people here and everybody's angry. But... Um, how many of you felt just general anxiety about the speed at which Christmas is approaching and the amount of stuff you still have left to do? How about how many of you have gone to the hospital for maybe yourself or for someone that you love in this season? Funerals, I mean, it, it just, it compounds. Um, so life, like life's always crazy, but the holidays seem to add to and amplify so much of that, don't they? And a lot of it's good stuff. Right? But it's, it's busy, nonetheless. And so in this craziness, in, in seasons like this, and really just in, in the, the busyness of life in general, we need an anchor, don't we? We need a hope that is secure. We need something that we can bank on. And I would say what that is that we need is the promises of God. And so this year for Advent, what we've been looking at is the promises of of God, and specifically uh, the covenants of God. The, the, there's several covenants throughout the scripture, but there's, there's sort of five major ones. And so uh, for the four Sundays of Advent and then Christmas Eve, we're going to be looking at those covenants. And so we, we've talked as the, uh, as the you know, series has gone on that covenants, though they're not the point of the scripture, they're not the main point at all, they really are sort of the backbone or the, the, the framework with which the rest of scripture kind of uh, rest on. They, they sort of give support and structure to what God is doing throughout the whole of Scripture. And so, um, w- you know, two weeks ago when we started, we looked at the, the covenant that God made with Noah, that he was never going to, again, destroy the world for its sin the way that he did in the flood. Um, and, and he put the rainbow in the sky to remind us of that promise. Instead, he had a greater he had a greater uh, way forward, a greater way to deal with sin. And that was, we looked ahead at that, that Christ is coming. Um, in that moment, God knows that he's going to deal with sin. Instead of laying it, his wrath on the world at large as he did in the flood, he's going to lay it on Jesus himself in our place. And so we looked at that. And then uh, we moved on into the Abrahamic covenant where God said, I'm going to use you, Abraham, to bless. I'm going to use you. I'm going to make your nation great, even though you ain't got no kids and you're really old. I'm going to do something incredible with you, and I'm going to make your family a great nation. And through that nation, I'm going to bless all peoples of the earth, all nations of the earth. And that was, of course, looking ahead to the day when through the line of Abraham would come the Christ child. And 
through Jesus, salvation would be proclaimed to all nations. And that's sort of, that we're in that season where salvation is being proclaimed and is going forward. And so today we move into, from Abraham into the Mosaic Covenant or the covenant that God makes with Israel. And so that's where we, we pick up our story in, in um, Exodus chapter 19. And um, it's really sort of important to um, talk about what happened between Abraham and Moses here for the sake of keeping the promises of God sort of tethered to real life. It's important to acknowledge and sort of understand and enter into this story knowing what's gone on between Abraham and where we pick up here. And um, it's sort of kind of easy to hit the highlights and to, and to st- fail to stop and think about what must have been going on in those moments in between. And so if you remember, God made a promise to Abraham that he was going to make him a great nation, and through that nation, he was going to bless all peoples of the earth. And so Abraham moves and follows God and, and, and does what God says. And then that, that covenant is confirmed with Abraham's son Isaac. And then the, the two sons that Isaac has, he's confirmed again. And then when one of those sons has uh, the, the 12 you know, patriarchs of Israel, like that is confirmed over and over again. Uh, but then what we see here as we pick up the story in Exodus chapter 19, it's going to reference back to something that has happened. Verse 1 here says, On the third new moon after the people of Israel had gone out of the land of Egypt. So that is in reference to a pretty big event or a season in the, the life of the people of God. And then if you are familiar with, with the Bible, then you know what I'm referencing. And if not, that's okay. What, what happened is, is, yes, God called Abraham to leave, and his family began, like the, the Bible and the last parts of Genesis begins to track Abraham's family and his descendants very closely as God is doing a personal work. And they end up in Egypt as initially as a way of salvation. God does an incredible story. I don't have time to unpack it. But they end up there to escape a famine. And originally they're given favor, and it's a good thing. But then over time, generation after generation passes, and they end up becoming slaves. And they end up being slaves in Egypt. The people of God are multiplying and growing, but it's not in a place of prosperity like God promised Abraham. Instead, it's in a place of suffering and slavery. And so this happens for 400 years. And so I want, I want to stop and think for a moment. What must have those people been thinking in those moments, right, in that season? When, when they were slaves, whenever they were unable to uh, see the hand of God and wonder where, what, what, what sort of thoughts were going through their mind, what sort of questions were they wondering about their God who had promised to be with them and give them this land, what sorts of uncertainty and doubts were going on in their minds? Where was this God? What, had he forgotten about his promise? What, was it all a lie? What, what, what were the people of God? It, it, in this moment, they just appeared to be slaves without hope. Do you think they questioned God? Furthermore, I want to ask you, what, what do you think and, and believe about God when he's not operating the way that you thought he would? What sorts of thoughts come into your mind in those seasons? Right, Because we often have an idea of what the fulfillment of God's promises will look like. And so we sort of we run ahead and fill in the blanks of his plan for us, right? We think, okay, he's promised me this, so it's going to look like this. And then when it doesn't look like that, we begin to be disillusioned and start doubting. And we start claiming that God must have not meant what he said, or he's unable, or he doesn't care, or he's... 
He's absent. And, and I want you to feel in a very real sense this, the, the longing and the waiting. That's part of what Advent is for. Like we want to enter into this season of, of waiting that the people of God had, had gone through generation after generation and so that we can really see and feel the, the bigness of Jesus' arrival. We have to enter into the, to the, uh, the waiting and the longing that his people experienced. And, and this Exodus story that, that we're um, sort of in the middle of here in Exodus 19 it becomes sort of the focal point of the scripture. It is referenced back to over and over and over again because it is a pivotal moment in the life of God's people. But we have to enter in and feel, we can't just go, oh yeah, 400 years. Like we have to feel that. Most of us, man, we can't wait like four days for anything. We get anxious, right? We start wondering, where are you, God? Why haven't you healed? Why haven't you showed up? Why haven't you delivered me from this sin? Why haven't you answered this prayer? Why haven't you got us out of this rough spot? Where are you? Right? And for generation after generation, the people of God felt this weight. But here's the deal. Like, we don't see all that God sees, do we? We don't see the bigger picture at hand. And when God makes a promise to us, he, he's promising, hey, this is what you can count on from me. This is how you can expect me to move and what you can expect me to do. And I'm, I have these purposes that I'm going to be about, and you can count on me fulfilling those purposes. But oftentimes we want to insert ourselves as the point of the story, right? We want to insert ourselves as, oh, God's here to serve me, and this is my agenda. So, God, why aren't you getting on board with my plan? You seem to have forgotten what we worked out when God is saying, no, no, no. What we worked out is, is this. You can expect this from me. I'll never leave you, never forsake you. I'm going to use you for my glory, and I'll, you'll be my treasure. Like, there, there's goodness there. There's presence there, but there's not this promise of everything being peachy king that sometimes we think there should be. And so we have to deal with the fact that God allowed them. He even foretold their suffering in Egypt. In Genesis 15, 13, we see that, that he told Abraham as he's sending him into, like, on this journey, he says, and you're, you're, you'll, be, you'll be slaves in a nation for 400 years. And, and then, like, so God foretold this. Why did he allow it and even uh, initiate it? And so we have to remember that when things aren't going the way that we think they should in our lives, that God has not abandoned us. God has not forgot about his promises. He just has a different view of things. He has a, a different approach. He has a, a bigger picture in mind. So I want you to think about like he, he's, he's birthing this nation of Israel out of the, the, the slavery of Egypt. And why? Well, I th- we notice what he's going to see in today is that he wants these, these people to be a people that are a kingdom of priests so that the rest of the world can see who God is. And so the rest of the world is in suffering. The rest of the world is going to be in slavery. And, and he wants them to be a people that he's going to bless and he's going to give them a promised land. And he wants them to be a people who are empathetic to others who are also sojourners and escaping slavery. He wants them to be a people whose heart goes out to those who are suffering and are without hope. And they can be a place where they can find hope. He wants them to be a people who, who know that they did not earn their salvation, but rather God just did it out of his goodness and his favor, right? It wasn't their goodness and their achievement that allowed them to be who there was. Rather, it was God's grace. And, and he wanted them to be a people who could declare his goodness and his deliverance. And so God has a purpose for wherever, wherever you are in your life, whatever you're going through. He has a reason for leading you through that. He has something that he's accomplishing both in you 
And in the greater scheme of things, and so we have to remember that. And especially as we talk about covenants and promises, we have to remember that we can anchor ourselves to those promises, but that means, like, that doesn't mean he's going to answer our prayers the way that we think he should, but we can count on what he has promised about himself and the way that he will handle himself. So uh, as, as we move into this next covenant and, and promise that, that God gives us for us to anchor ourselves, it's important to, to have that in mind that he allowed them to be slaves, sojourners, and homeless so that they would be a people who would empathize and, and be, and be um, compassionate toward others. As later he's going to see as he's forming this nation, he says, whenever, like, I want you to treat those that are suffering around you with compassion. I want them, you to be a place where they can find hope and healing. And he also, again, he wanted them to be a people who experienced his deliverance and his salvation, not an earning of it themselves, but, but, but his grace and the way that he had delivered them. We see that in verse 3 and 4 as he goes on. Um, we didn't read verse 2 yet, so we'll read that. So they set out from Rephidim and came into the wilderness of Sinai, and they encamped in the wilderness. And there Israel encamped before the mountain, while Moses went up to God. The Lord called to him out of the mountain, saying, Thus you shall say to the house of Jacob, and tell the people of Israel. Okay, so God brought them out of Egypt. It's an incredible story of, of deliverance. We're going to see in this moment. He brings them to this mountain, and he's going to now begin to t- introduce himself in a greater degree. He's going to be able to, get to, to speak to them who he is and make this covenant with them. So verse 4, he says this, You yourselves have seen what I did to the Egyptians and how I bore you on eagle's wings and brought you to myself. This is important that we, because we, what we're about to move into where God gives the law, right? The next chapter is where God gives the Ten Commandments, and the next chapters after that is where God gives a whole lot more commandments. And we can too quickly move into that and think, okay, yeah, God gave this people, and, and it's all about the commandments and obeying them. But it's important to realize what God is saying here in this moment before he gets to the commandments is he's reminding them that they have been saved already. It is a work of God. It is not on them to do. He didn't give them a list of rules and the commandments while they were in Egypt and say, hey, do all of this, obey all of these things, and if you can do that, then I will save you. He didn't do that, did he? No, instead, he heard their cry. He's a God of mercy, and he intervened. He brought them out. He says, I bore you on eagles' wings. I, I, you saw what I did to the Egyptians, to your enemy. I, he crushed them in the Red Sea. That story of God parting the Red Sea doesn't end there. The people of God get to walk across on dry land. When their enemies are pursuing them, behind them, God brings the, the waters in to crush all of their enemies. So th- this is a story in which God has, has flexed his might. The Bible points back and says, your, your might and your outstretched arm God saved and made this people a nation through this work. And so it's important for us to realize that he's already saved them before he enters into this covenant with them, before he gives them the law. And so as we talk about this covenant, um, which again is often called the law because it's where God is going to give these rails for his people to run on. This is how life works best um, you're going to be my people. I'm your king now. This is what this is the sort of the new administration rolls out. This is what it's going to look like. And as he does that, and, and again, the rest of the Bible is going to point back to this covenant and call it the law or the old covenant. It's important for us to realize that before he gave us those rules, he gave them salvation. So he doesn't give them the law so that they can earn salvation. No, he rescues them. He brings them to himself. And then... He says, 
Verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, then you shall be my treasured possession among all people. For all the earth is mine. You shall be to me a kingdom of priests and a holy nation. These are the words that you shall speak to the people of Israel. So it's interesting. This covenant is a bit unique and different from the first two we talked about because the first two, it's just it's God making a promise. It's God making a commitment. He just says, I'm not going to do this anymore to Noah. And then with Abraham, he says, hey, I'm going to do this, and I expect you to do that, but honestly, I'm going to bear the whole brunt of that. And we saw in the ceremonial uh, sealing of that covenant that God, him, God himself bears the fullness of that, and Abraham is, is laying there helplessly asleep. And so God is, is, is making those, those promises, those commitments in those moments, and it, there's not really conditions to that for the people. But in this one, there is. There is conditional um, a, a return of what the people are expected to do. God says, I will do this, but you have to do this. And so there's conditions to this covenant, but it's not conditions that lead to salvation, right? Because they've already got that. We just saw that. They've already got the salvation of the Lord. And then two, the other reason we know that the law doesn't lead to salvation, that's not what God is accomplishing in this, in this passage, is because we're going to see that really this covenant of, of Israel or, or Moses, it's, it's really the, the covenant that God made with, the, with Israel, but Moses is the, um, the mediator and sort of the character that everybody you know, is, is familiar with, so it's often called the Mosaic Covenant. And this covenant is rolled out in, a, in really... Um, a series of chapters from chapter 19 all the way to 34. And, and in this, we're going to see that, that it's, really not, it's really not a matter of, hey, complete all of these tasks, perform all of these duties perfectly, and if you do that, then you'll get these things. And we know that, A, because they've already received salvation, but B, because they're going to screw it up before it even gets fully implemented. As you read on in the story, there's, there's a moment where, where Moses is up sort of finalizing you know, some details with God, and he's up there for 40 days. And while he's up there, these jokers that have already made a commitment, right, we see in, in the end here, in verse 8 of the passage we read, uh, you know, God says, hey, are y'all going to do that, right? And the Lord, um, and they said, yeah, man, all that the Lord's spoken, we will do, right? They make this commitment. They made it another time. But while Moses is up there for 40 days, right, that close to all that God had done for them, bringing them out of Egypt, they've seen the plagues, they've seen the Passover, right, they saw the Red Sea be parted, they've, they've, they've literally been eating food from heaven, as the story said, right, they've never seen it before, but God knew they needed something, so he provided, they've seen water come from a rock, all of that is fresh on their minds, and while Moses is up there, they go, you know what, we'd really like to have a God we can see. God just told them, hey, don't make any Images, right? Don't worship any other gods before me. Don't make any images of me. And, and they that quickly, that quickly turn their hearts away. And God is ready. Right? They deserve to all be destroyed, but Moses intercedes. And in this, we have a pointing ahead to Christ where there's a mediator that stands in and, and pleads before God that his wrath would be redirected. And, and, and God allows the people of Israel to be spared. There's, there's judgment and punishment, and many do die, but he, the people at large are spared, and God continues. And after that moment, it's after that moment that God declares to Moses, he says, this is who I am. I am the Lord your God, full of mercy, slow to anger, and abounding in steadfast love. It's after that, after they blew it so blatantly with the golden calf, God says, slow to anger, I'm full of steadfast love, and mercy is a part of my character. So what is this condition then? 
If it's not, hey, perform all these tasks perfectly, and if you do, then you get to experience these things, then what is this condition? And it's more, it's, it's, a, it's about the posture of the people of God. It's not about performing all of those tasks perfectly. This is, he says, do these things so that life may go well for you. But we see a bit more of the details when we look at, at chapter 20, uh, verses 5 and 6, a part of the Ten Commandments. Um, and really, some theologians later have helped us understand, like, if we get the first commandment, then we're really not going to break the others. If we're worshiping God with all that we have and all that we are, then we're not going to make other gods before him, right? We're not going to make graven engines. We're not going to worship um, other gods. And, and Jesus is going to likewise say, hey, if you love your neighbor, you're not going to steal from him, and so on and so forth. And so in that sort of uh, initial uh, giving of the commandments, we see, we see something that God says in, in chapter 20. Uh, verse 5 and 6, he says, You shall not bow down to other gods or serve them, for I am the Lord your God, am a jealous God. That's, that's, that's language, that's relational language, right? That's, that's affection language, that's love language. He says, I am a jealous God, the Lord your God, and I'm visiting the iniquity of the fathers on the children to the third and fourth generation to those who hate me, but showing steadfast love to thousands of those who love me and keep my commandments. We're going to see this played out in, in the New Testament and John, this, this correlation between loving God and obeying his commands. It's not this, in order to prove your love for God, you've got to do all these things. And it's not, oh, you only love God if you do all these things. It's, it's about our posturing of ourselves primarily that our affection, our value, nothing else takes the place of God in our life. That he is primary and foremost in our life. Our affections are for him exclusively. And when that happens, those other, like we're going to automatically have this, this drive, this inclination to obey, right? We're, we're going to have this inclination to pursue what we value. And if we value him first and foremost, then the obedience part is, is going to happen. So it's about trust. It's about um, loving God. So it's not about working to receive these blessings. It's more about keeping our posture of love before God so that when we do fail, when we do fall, like we're able to receive his mercy. We're able to stay in, in the place where we're receiving this grace from this God who's slow to anger and abounding in steadfast love and full of mercy. It's right. It's keeping him there. And so that, that's, that's the condition there. Like if you will do these things, if you'll obey my voice. We saw it from um, Abraham. Like when, when God showed up and told Abram, hey, pack up your family and go to this country that I'm going to tell you I'm going to make you a great nation. The Bible says that Abraham just believed him. Believed him. And, and the Bible says, because he believed him, it was counted to him as righteousness. It's a matter of putting our trust in. We talk about that when we trust Jesus all the time. We talk about trusting, putting our trust, our faith in Jesus. And when we do that, that is when we are given salvation. That is what God is primarily worried about. The other details of the law are secondary. What he's wanting is a people who worship him and treasure him and value him and love him above all else. And if we do that, then we're going to experience these things, these things that are lined out in the rest of this passage. So the role of the people of Israel is not to work to earn his blessing, but rather to keep their posture as such so that they can receive the blessing. We know it's not do this you know, perfectly and then get that as a result, right? And we talked about it's about love. So what does, what does God desire to give them? If they do that, if they keep his command, if they, they love him primarily, then what is it that he wants to give them. So I want to look at back at um, verses 5 and 6, and I want you to listen to this. We, we've talked about in the last series that God is, at, is about the work of restoration, right? We, we see in Genesis 1 that things were really good, 
God didn't make this earth bad and be like, oh, I really, you know, didn't think that through. Like, no, no, he made it really good. And that's how life is supposed to be. And all the work of, of Scripture is really to get us back to that place of shalom, of goodness, of peace, where, where there's not this barrier between us and God, but rather we're in fellowship with him. And so I want you to hear the, I want you to hear the echoes of Eden in these promises of what God is trying to accomplish with his people, what he's wanting to gift them with. I want you to hear the echoes of Eden in that. So now, therefore, verse 5, if you will indeed obey my voice and keep my covenant, you shall what? Be my treasured possession among all peoples. But listen, he says, for all the earth is mine. So it's not like God says, I'm going to get you. You know, I really want some people on this earth, so I'm going to get you. No, he says, the whole earth is mine. I don't need, like, I don't need anybody. Like, all of this is my domain, my authority, my creation. He says, what, what, I, what I'm wanting to do in you is not just be this vague authority over it that you call. No, no, I'm going to you to be my treasured He's, all the earth is mine, but, but you. There's this special relationship that he's going to have where he's going to be present. Again, that's back to the Garden of Eden, right? Where, where they were, like, in the presence of God. They were naked and unashamed. They, they walked with him in the, in the coolness of the Eden. Like, it was this goodness that they experienced in this relationship with God. And that's what he's saying. I, I, want, I want that. I made you to be that. I made you to be these people that are in my image and, and rule with me on this earth. And, and, and hey, you keep this covenant, and, and, and we'll have that. We'll have that sort of relationship, and it'll be really, really rich and good. Secondly, he says, you'll be a kingdom of priests. What does that mean? Well, we don't have time to unpack the fullness of, of the role of priest, and part of that is to represent God to the people and, and the people to God, but, but mainly the, the privilege of the priest. The priest didn't get an inheritance of the land like the rest of the tribes did. The priest, their inheritance was that they got access to God. This is an incredible gift that the priests were given access to God. And that's what he's saying is you're going to have access to me. You're going to be able to worship me. You're going to be able to be in my presence. And there's, there's beauty. And there's the, that's the gift of the gospel that God, that's, that's what Jesus died to give us is once again to be able to have access to the presence of God. That we would be a kingdom of priests. That we would be able to approach his throne of grace. That's, that's the glory of the gospel that he's purchased for us. It's not to get out of hell. Like, that's secondary. The real gift of the gospel is that we get to be in the presence of the living God. That's the gift. So, so he's, he wants to create a special people, right? Uh, he owns the whole world, but he wants to have a special people that are his possession. And then a kingdom of priests. They have access to God. And then thirdly, he says, I want to make you a holy nation. A holy nation. What does that mean? It means you're going to be pure and righteous, right? When all the world is full of evil and, and brokenness and sin, I want, I'm going to make you a people who are pure and righteous and blameless so that the rest of the world can, can look and see that this is where life is found. This is where goodness is found. This is where healing, this is how life is supposed to be, to make you a holy nation full of purity and blamelessness. And then elsewhere, he's going to, he's going to um, tell them, like, hey, I'm going to be your protector, right? Anybody who comes against you, they'll be my enemy, and they'll have to answer to me, and I, I will protect you and vindicate you. And I'm going to do this marvelous work. So that, that's the sort of relationship he's calling them into. But, but it's all if. It's all if they can do this. If they can do that. If they hold up their end of the covenant, then they will get this. But, but they fail. They fail repeatedly and miserably. That's what a lot of the, the rest of the Old Testament is just going to be outlining this, this, this uh, process of them failing and God renewing and then failing and God renewing and then failing and God renewing. And over and over again, this cycle happens because they don't love God as 
They should, right? They, it's not about those, those rules. It's about their posture of love, right? They, they're, they're not able to live in the blessings that God wants for them because they, their, their hearts are torn. They, their hearts are, the Bible says that there's no one who seeks God. There's no one who does good. All of our hearts have gone away. We've all rebelled against him and ran the other way, and we break commandments along the way, but the real issue of brokenness is us turning away from God. Moses is going to later tell the people, uh, after years of frustration and walking with them before he dies, he says, you, you guys are hard-hearted. You're not getting it because God has not yet given you a heart to obey. It's interesting language there. And it begins to pick up this thread that the prophets are going to point to a, a day when a new covenant would come and when the, the, the tablets of stone that God had written his law on will be replaced and instead it will be written on our hearts. The Bible says that we have hard hearts, unable to dead and unable to be resurrected. It doesn't matter what God does like in those, like without him giving us a new heart. He can't just fix the external problems. He has to fix the internal problem. And, and the prophets point ahead to this day. When the new covenant will come and, and the heart of stone, right, the, flood, the, the stone which the, the commandments that Moses comes down the mountain, they're, they're written on stone that one day he says, I'm going to write my law on the hearts of my people. And they'll be transformed from the inside out. See, this is the glory of Christmas because Christ comes and Christ becomes the new and better Moses. The man who delivers his people from slavery to sin. Christ becomes the better Moses. And then he comes, and he is the new and the better Israel. He's the only one who is able to uphold the law. He's the only one who's able to live perfectly and righteously. Christ comes to fulfill what these people couldn't. He is our righteousness. He fulfills the requirements of this covenant where we're unable to and experience. He, he's, he's, he saved the people already. He doesn't send them back to Egypt, but he has so much more for them. Right? He wants them to experience life in him, and, and they can't because their hearts are still full of sin and broken. And so it points us to this greater need. And, and one day, as the, the story in Jesus' storybook Bible said, one day, the only one who can the only one who is able, we say it here often, the gospel is summed up like this, that he came to live the life that you and I could not live, meaning he was perfect. He was tempted in every way that we were, but he was without sin. He lived the life that you and I couldn't live. And then he died the death that you and I deserve to die. And he allowed that the sins of the world to all be placed on him and crush him to hell. And then he was vindicated when he rose again three days later. And that is the, the glory of the gospel. Yes, we're celebrating his coming and the culmination of these promises coming in Jesus. But the Christmas is only glorious because of Easter, right? Like he, he, see, like he confirms and validates and, and seals all of the claims that he made and all of the promises. Find their yes and amen in Jesus whenever he comes out of the tomb that day. And this is good news for us because... The, the conditional promises of Exodus 19, the conditional promises of the old covenant are made are made sure and permanent in Christ Jesus. Where it says, hey, if you do this, then you can experience that. Those conditions are made unconditional. They're made permanent. They're made a gift when Jesus accomplishes what he does on the cross. Because of Christ, we are far more than just forgiven. Right? Too often we stop there with the gospel. We talk about Jesus coming to die so that we can be forgiven of our sins and we can go to heaven when we die instead of hell, right? And, and that's, not, like, that's not to minimize that. 
Like I say all the time, like we should, that's enough to cause us to rejoice. It's enough to cause us to praise, to give our life. But, but it's, it doesn't end there. Like that's not all that he has for us. Yes, we're forgiven, but, but not just forgiven. Because sometimes we stop there and we think we're just forgiven and pardoned and then we're just sort of tolerated by God. Anybody ever felt that? Like, I'm really not worthy. Like, I'm still a sinner. I'm still a wretch. God must be unhappy with me. God must not be pleased with me, right? Because I'm, I'm a mess. Sometimes we wrestle with whether the salvation was legit, whether it really took, right? When we need to do that again. So, so often we just we stop there about at the forgiveness part and, and, and we think we're just pardoned and then tolerated when that is not at all what he is leading us to. Again, through Christ, what was conditional to the people of God is now accomplished and secure for us, his people. I want you to listen to the parallel passage in 1 Peter 2, 9 and 10. This is where Peter's going to look back and use the same language of the promise of this old covenant. And I want you to listen to the way that the language has changed. Because it's no longer if you do this. It's that he has done that. And because he has done that, we can claim these promises that he put before his people as conditional are now ours, secure and accomplished because of Christ Jesus. So listen to this. He says, Peter says this, but you are a chosen race, a royal priesthood. This is, this is us in Christ because of what Christ has done you are, it says, a chosen race, a, a royal priesthood, a holy nation, a people for his own possession, that you may proclaim the excellencies of him who called you out of darkness and into his marvelous light. Once you were not a people, but now you are God's people. Once you had not received mercy, but now you have. This is the beauty of the gospel. I want you to hear this. I want you to apply this to your life, that Jesus comes. Sometimes we don't even know that we're longing for him to be our righteousness, right? We don't think about that in, in our everyday language, that, that we could not fulfill the law that Moses gave. And, and so we, we're not always longing for that. But in, in reality, we are. Like, we're, we're longing, like we were made to be in relationship with God, and that requires holiness, right? We see back in, in Exodus, like as God is going to call his people to him at the end of the verse that we read, God says, come to me, right? I want everybody to gather around. And he says, I'm, I'm going to come down to you in a thick cloud of verse 9 of Exodus 19 and, and speak that the people may hear and also believe. So God says, I don't want you to just hear me, Moses. I want to speak in such a way that everybody's going to hear. And then there's, there's these, gonna come these instructions about how not to die when they come to hear God speak, right? Don't come too close to the mountain. Don't come with, with sin. Don't do these things before you come. Consecrate yourself. Why? Because God is holy. God is righteous and just. And so that is, like, that is the, the, the posture that is required to enter into the presence of God. But instead, we can never fulfill that, and Jesus does that. And, and so we don't know that we're longing for that, but because of Jesus, I want you to hear today that you are, you are a chosen people. You are loved. Like, you're not just tolerated. Christian, I'm talking to you, not just collectively as a church, I'm talking to you personally. You're not just tolerated. You're chosen. He picked you. You're special. I want you to hear this. Dads who feel like a failure, feel like you're not doing enough, I want you to hear this. Moms who, who wonder 
if, if you'll ever be able to do enough or if you're letting your kids down. I want you to, I want you to hear this, kids, who, who wonder why like, it just never seems like you're enough and you can't win the affection of your peers or, or your parents are throwing the blank. I want you to hear this, that you no longer do you have to wonder if you have value. I want, you to, I want this to sink in. Like, too many of us are trying to earn this. Like, we hear the gospel and we go, yeah, I know that, but. And then we just heap on this, this guilt, right? We heap on this, our inner critic just keeps telling us all that we need to do and how bad we really are. And God, like, and, and we believe this lie that, as one pastor says, that God's in love with some future version of us. That when we get our life cleaned up, then he'll really love us, right? And then we can have fellowship with him. And none of that is true. It, it says you are, not you will be. Like, if you're in Jesus, you are a chosen people. He gave his life for you. You have value based on that, and nothing else matters. You don't have to wonder if you have value in this world. Secondly, he says, you are a royal priesthood. It means you have access to God. You can walk into the presence of the king. Again, he doesn't just tolerate you. He's the king. He says, all this is mine. The whole world is mine. And yet, Hebrews says that because of the blood of Christ, we can boldly approach the throne. Why is it a throne? Because our God is king. He says we can come and we're a royal priesthood. Why? Because that king has adopted us. Part of the royal family. Like we get to come. Not based off what we've done, what Christ has done. He has purchased this. He has become, again, our greater Moses. He's become our greater Israel that allows us to walk in the King of Kings, and receive grace. He says, you are a holy nation. Don't you hear that? Like, to, to be spoken over and say that you are holy is not something that we're familiar with often. And it feels bl- blasphemous, right? Because we're, we know we're not holy. And, and on your own works, you're not. But we need to know this theological truth that Jesus is righteousness. We talk all the time about him taking our sin, right? On the cross, that he took our sin when, when he died on the cross, and that is true, but what he gave to us, he imputed to us, was, was his righteousness. So that when God looks at you, he doesn't see your sin. The Bible says that though your sins be red and dark as scarlet, come, come, really make them white as snow. When, Christ, when God looks at you, he sees what Christ has done, not what you have done. He sees Christ's righteousness, not your guilt, because Christ took that guilt and he carried it far away. So you need to know that, that, that because of Christ, you're a holy people. You're holy, you're, 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 you're blameless. That guilt that you're struggling with, Christ says, no, 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 that's not you. That doesn't define you. There's no condemnation for you who are in Christ Jesus. That's done, that's carried away. You are righteous in Jesus. Like what, what he's done has made you righteous. If you are in him, then you have no guilt. You're a holy nation. This is great news. Right? The, the dirtiness, the guilt, the shame of either what we've done or what has been done to us keeps so many of us chained to, to, to brokenness and to addiction and to hiding. We don't experience the fullness of what God has for us because we don't believe that he has made us righteous. He's made us holy. This is good news. This is what Christmas, like, this is good news. Now you need to hear this. Too often, here's what, here's what you... Many of us have done, right? You've gotten really good at hiding, at pretending about your sin. And when you're really good at hiding, you don't let the gospel and the grace wash over you in moments like this. Because if you're not willing to confess them and own them, then you can't let him take them and wash you clean. 
You need to know that whatever you're hiding, your addiction, your, your sins, that, that you've convinced the people around you that don't exist, that you've convinced your, your friends, your family, whatever, like, God knows already. He's not impressed with your hiding. And his invitation is, come, come. I know that. Let me clean you up. Let me give you my righteousness. Stop letting, stop bearing that. I already bore it on the cross. Stop it. Give it to me fully. That's what he wants for us. That's what he's, that's what he's purchased for us. He's made us a holy nation. And then lastly, he says, a people set apart. Special people, a people of possession of his, right? When the rest of the world is drifting, unsure of where this is all going to head, we have assurance in Christ that he has made promises to us that we can cling to. We are his people. He is our father. And there's a song that says, if our God is for us, then who could be against us? Right, that the enemy, that, that the spiritual power of darkness, and the, like they cannot win the ultimate war for our family, for our heart, because we have the promise of the Lion of Judah, of the King of Kings. And, and though it may not happen in our time, what we think it should be, like we have his promises. And we can trust in that. We can let that anchor us in, in the midst of craziness and busyness and all these things. This is good news. This is the tidings of great joy. So Christian, take heart. Take heart. If you're, if you're not living as though these things are true, then you need to let, like, you need to start living as though you are a chosen people of value defined by the cross. You need to start living as a people who are a royal priesthood, who have access to the God of the universe, the King of Kings, and, and therefore can go and, and tell the gospel to others and how they can come and, and have access and be forgiven to the, by the King of Kings. You are a holy nation. You're a righteous people. You start living as such. You're a people who are set apart and have the promises of God. Like We need to start embracing that. And if you're here and you're not a Christian, my invitation is that you would become one. Paul says, and I believe it's 1 Timothy, that this is, a, say, this is a, a saying that's trustworthy and true, that Christ Jesus came in the world to save sinners. And this is Paul, the church planner, writer of much of the New Testament, and he says, of whom I am the foremost, or the chief. So Christmas is good news for the chief of sinners, good news for those of us who know we have no hope outside of Jesus Christ. But in Jesus Christ, we have an incredible hope. We have an incredible covenant. We have an incredible covenant of blessing that he wants to walk with us in. He wants to shower us with. He wants us to experience life and freedom from bondage and holiness and relationship with him. Not just forgiveness and then tolerating, but forgiveness, washed clean and embraced and adopted and enjoyed. Let's pray. God, I'm grateful. grateful for the hope that is in Jesus. And it's not relying upon us, but rather it's what you've accomplished already on the cross. Thank you for coming. We celebrate that in this season, that you came, that you stepped in. Today, may that message ring overwhelmingly loud in this place the people who are suffering in sin, who have been abused, who are being like, 
suffering and caught in addiction, caught in sin, whatever it may be, Lord, may the fact that the Lord of the universe, the creator of all things, stepped off of his throne and into this world to bring salvation, may that ring true and may that truth bust through every heart here and set us free from our sins and break chains of, of addiction and, and of fill in the blank, Lord, of, of shame and guilt. Lord, would you do that work here this morning? Give us faith to respond. If there's people here that don't, that have never trusted you to be their Savior, would you, would you call them to yourself today? In Jesus' name, amen.